History, the show where we share our favorite stories from Boston history. This is episode 68, The Execution of Washington Good. Hi, I'm Jake. And I'm Nikki. This week, we're going to discuss an 1848 murder case that nearly brought an end to the death penalty in Massachusetts. When a young black man named Washington Good was convicted of first-degree murder that year, there hadn't been an execution in Boston for 13 years. White men who had been convicted of the same crime had their sentences commuted to a life in prison, and tens of thousands of petitions poured in asking the governor to do the same thing for good. Yet, even so, he was sent to the gallows. We'll discover why that was. But before we talk about the hanging of Washington Good, and before we take a look at this week's featured historic site and upcoming event, we have a special request. This year marks the centennial of the 1918 Spanish flu. It was the most deadly pandemic in human history, and it got started right here in Boston. We're going to do a show on the outbreak later this year, and we'd like to include some of your family's stories. Did someone in your family get sick with influenza in 1918? Did they work in a hospital or volunteer with the Red Cross? Did they serve in a military unit whose readiness was affected by the flu? We set up a hotline where you can get in touch with us at 617-383-9255. If you have a story you can tell in about a minute or less, just leave a voicemail telling us. We'll set up the clip. Again, the number is 617-383-9255. If you have a longer story you think we should hear, leave your contact information and we'll get in touch. Now, let's turn to our historic site. If you listened to our classic episode about Boston's resistance to the Fugitive Slave Act last week, you might remember a scene where two different groups of abolitionists are holding two competing meetings in Boston. Anthony Burns was being held in the federal courthouse as a fugitive slave. At Faneuil Hall, a group of mostly white abolitionists spent the evening debating a series of futile protests. Up on Tremont Street, another group of abolitionists met at the Tremont Temple. This group was mostly black, and they quickly came to the conclusion that action was the only answer. The resulting attempt to storm the courthouse and free Burns was unsuccessful, but in a way it embodies the role of the Tremont Temple in the abolitionist movement in the mid-19th century. Before it opened as a Baptist church, and before it became a hub of abolitionist thought, the original building was constructed as a Greek Revival-style theater in 1827. It operated as the Tremont Theater for the next 18 years, but it slipped deeper and deeper into debt. On December 28, 1843, the theater building was sold to a congregation that called themselves the Free Church Baptists. They vowed to make the new Tremont Temple free to attend, unlike most Boston churches at the time, which charged a monthly rent on pews. And they also vowed to make it racially integrated. That was certainly unlike most Boston churches at the time, and it was unlike most churches anywhere in the U.S. Today, the Tremont Temple claims to have been the first multiracial church in the country. It became a favorite venue for abolitionist orators from Sam Houston to William Lloyd Garrison to Frederick Douglass himself. In fact, on December 3, 1860, a group of fine, upstanding white citizens got so offended about what Douglass was saying at the Tremont Temple that they rioted in order to shut him up. Just over two years later, it was the place where thousands of hopeful Bostonians gathered to await news from the telegraph offices. On January 1, 1863, President Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation, and a breathless runner brought word to the Tremont Temple, where Frederick Douglass announced the news to the crowd. 
Later, he'd remember the moment. The occasion, wherefore, was one of both hope and fear. Whether we should survive or perish depended in large measure upon the coming of this proclamation. We were waiting and listening as for a bolt from the sky which should rend the fetters of four millions of slaves. We were watching, as it were, by the dim lights of the stars for the dawn of a new day. We were longing for the answer to the agonizing prayers of centuries. The church building was gutted by fire in 1852 and 1879, and finally completely destroyed in 1893. The current building was completed and dedicated in 1896. Despite its rich history, the church doesn't rest on its laurels, because, as their website says, God has blessed Tremont Temple throughout our long history. We are aware, however, that history will not save us. Because it's an active house of worship, the only way to see this stunning main hall is to attend a service at 10.30 a.m. on a Sunday morning. And for our upcoming event this week, we're highlighting the Framingham History Center's upcoming event, From Slavery to Freedom, a slave narrative of Aunt Sally Williams, recorded by Edna Dean Proctor. Per the center's website, Storyteller Libby Frank will portray Edna Dean Proctor as an abolitionist and journalist who published Aunt Sally Williams' story just five years after Uncle Tom's Cabin was released. Born in New Hampshire and buried in Framingham, Edna Dean Proctor spent many years in Brooklyn, New York, at the home of Henry Bowen, publisher of The Independent. When Aunt Sally showed up at the offices of the paper in January 1857, Edna was asked to record her story. After being enslaved on a North Carolina rice plantation, Sally was sold to a more lenient master and was able to work as an independent entrepreneur with her children living with her. But the jealousy of her neighbors, both black and white, forced her back into the cruelties of slavery in Alabama. How Sally's son bought her freedom through a network of literate slaves and her delivery to Brooklyn is a tale as compelling today as it was in antebellum days. Songs of the period will be sung by Adrian Williams. The event will be held Sunday, February 25th at 2 p.m. Tickets are $10. We'll include details on the location and how to purchase tickets in this week's show notes. In the archives of the Concord Library, there's a paper scroll eight inches wide and over seven feet long, covered in signatures. The second signature is that of Henry David Thoreau. On the reverse side, a newspaper clipping identifies the document as a petition against the execution of Washington Good. When it was rediscovered in the archives in the 1960s, little was known about it, and less was known about the man named Washington Good. News coverage of his arrest in 1848 was sparse, as seen here in the Boston Daily Bee. Murder. At 11 o'clock last evening in Richmond Street, a colored man was knocked down and stabbed in three places, in consequence of which he died immediately. The murderer, also a Negro, was arrested in Southwick Street at 3 o'clock this morning. You might be left wondering, as Barry Critzberg was in a 1994 article about the petition, why did 400 citizens of Concord, almost 20% of the population, concern themselves over the fate of an obscure black seaman convicted of murdering a shipmate after a quarrel over a prostitute? The story begins in Boston's North End in the summer of 1848. One June night, a 28-year-old seaman visited his girlfriend of about a year, Mary Ann Williams, in her rooms on Ann Street. The seaman was a black man named Washington Good, who was originally from Mercersburg, Pennsylvania. 
Incidentally, my parents worked in Mercersburg in the late 70s, and I was born in a neighboring town. He worked as a cook on two different Boston-based ships, and when he was on shore, he preferred to spend his time in the rough-and-tumble neighborhood that was then known as the Black Sea. The Black Sea was a not-so-subtly-racist nickname for a neighborhood centered on Ann Street, which stretched from Faneuil Hall, past the North End Wharves, through North Square, and along the waterfront. It was a favorite haunt of sailors of all races, becoming one of the few racially integrated spaces in the city at the time. It also became known as the epicenter of vice in the city. Ann Street was lined with taverns, gambling dens, and hundreds of brothels. After a series of police raids in 1851 nabbed hundreds of ne'er-do-wells for piping, fiddling, dancing, drinking, and attending crimes, the city changed the street's name to North Street in 1852 to try to improve its image. The media would make a lot of assumptions about Mary Ann Williams because she made her home along Ann Street, and the defense team in the eventual trial would characterize her as a vile prostitute. She vehemently denied this charge, but the record showed that she had at least one other gentleman caller at the same time she was entertaining Washington Good, and she was still married to a third man. On the evening of June 27, 1848, Good visited Williams in her rooms and spotted a fancy silk handkerchief that he'd never seen before. He asked her about it, and she said it was a gift from Thomas Harding. Harding was another black sailor, and he'd been courting Marianne for a few months. Good flew into a rage and tried to burn the handkerchief. When Williams stopped him, he tore it in half, threw it to the floor, and stomped out of the apartment. An account in the book Rights of Execution describes what played out the next day. The next day, Harding visited Williams and asked what happened to the handkerchief. After she told him, a witness heard Harding claim that he would ask Good to pay for the damaged article. Within the drinking cellars and dancing rooms along Richmond Street that night, Good said he heard Harding was after him and that he was prepared for an encounter. Armed with a sailor's common sheath knife and fortified with strong drink, Good was heard to declare that before the night ended, he would make Rome howl. In the restricted environs of Richmond and Ann Streets, Good, Harding, and Williams encountered one another at Harris's cellar between 10 and 11 o'clock on the night of June 28th. No one recalled whether Harding or Good arrived first, but when Williams entered, Good slapped her with his open hand and shoved her to the floor. At the time, Harding was in another room. When told Good was looking for him, customers heard him reply, Let him come. That's what I want. Good left Harris's first. Harding followed shortly thereafter. Less than half an hour passed before Harding was dead. There were plenty of witnesses who saw Good and Harding in Harris's basement saloon, but nobody saw what transpired after they left. In a nearby alley, somebody hit Thomas Harding over the head hard enough to fracture his skull and left him with a nine-inch deep stab wound between his ribs. Because Good was charged with first-degree murder, he was tried before the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court, with Chief Justice Lemuel Shaw presiding. The defense counsel argued that the jury should acquit because a conviction would require the death sentence, and they didn't want to have Washington Good's blood on their hands. The prosecution objected, and Judge Shaw upheld it, saying it was out of order to discuss the expediency or justice of the death penalty. Both sides were warned to only argue the facts of the case. Unfortunately, there were very few facts. One witness said he had seen a figure dressed like Good in the alley, 
but hadn't seen his face. Another said he had heard a voice similar to Goods say, God damn you, I got my revenge. A few witnesses said the killer had been wearing a hat of the same style as Good, and everyone knew that Harding and Good had quarreled, and by 4 a.m., Captain John Harrington had placed Washington Good under arrest at his uncle's boarding house. When he was arrested, Good was carrying a common seaman's sheath knife of about 11 inches. The arresting officer would testify that Good said, I have only one life. You may do with it as you please. Many portrayals focused on Good's race, using the stereotypes of the day to paint him as a monster. One newspaper described him as an ugly-looking fellow with a retreating forehead, high cheekbones, and short, woolly hair who wore a mustache on his upper lip. Reporters, and indeed the prosecutor, would try to paint him as a near brute, unable to control his animalistic passions. On the other side, death penalty opponents would appeal to the Massachusetts abolitionist tendency to argue that his race made Washington good naive, a sort of poor innocent wretch. A sympathetic newspaper said, He had no school or pulpit, no father or mother to teach him. He had been raised in the rice swamps. He had been in New Orleans, where an agent of the Bible Society had been refused to give the Bible to a slave. He floated along into Massachusetts and into Boston, where his class associates. Here he had gotten into a drunken quarrel. Threats were offered on both sides. A man is found murdered, and he is charged with the crime, and Massachusetts has nothing better for him than to hang him. Another editorial said, Half savage as he is, ignorant and unenlightened, because centuries of oppression have debased his race, and because in the midst of enlightenment and civilization, his race alone has been deprived of light and bound down by the laws of perpetual ignorance. His soul is as dark as was that of his ancestors when torn from their African home. It is not good who begs his life at your hands, for I verily believe that no one would call more loudly than he for death in preference to imprisonment. To him, mere animal as he is, Life has no joys beyond those which personal freedom gives. Even Good's defense counsel, when Judge Shaw offered Good a chance to speak on his own behalf, claimed that, as a member of a benighted and downtrodden race, he had nothing to say. There are some historic criminal cases where, when we look back, we can recognize a clear miscarriage of justice, where the evidence clearly shows that the accused was innocent. The Washington Good case isn't so clear-cut. From everything we've read, it certainly seems possible that he was guilty. But the prosecution was far from proving that beyond a reasonable doubt. The entire case was built, as William Lloyd Garrison put it, on circumstantial evidence of the most flimsy character. Nevertheless, the jury deliberated for less than 35 minutes before returning a guilty verdict, and Judge Shaw sentenced Washington Good to hang. At the time Washington Good received his death sentence, there hadn't been an execution in Boston for 13 years. It was the height of the 19th century movement to abolish the death penalty. The progressive tendency that led reformers to oppose slavery, support women's suffrage, and eventually take up the cause of prohibition also expressed itself in widespread opposition to the death penalty. Advances in science helped doctors of the age cure diseases of the body and the mind, Certainly, it would only be a matter of time until science allowed the eradication of crime, and in the meantime, wasn't it cruel and unusual to hang a man? 
The sudden influx of Irish immigrants in the 1840s also led to the Catholic Church occupying a newly influential position in Boston, and the Church was against the death penalty. The Boston Pilot, a newspaper published by the local Catholic archdiocese, would write the following. We believe that the fear of punishment does not deter from homicide, and the world is beginning to think so too. In this case, the chief argument for hanging goes to the ground. People will say, blood for blood, tis an old and sound law. But society, even as it is, has long ceased to respect that law. It will not have blood for blood. At all events, if life is to be held such a sacred thing, the deliberate, cold-blooded law should not exhibit itself choking men, should not turn homicide to discountenance murder. We absolutely think it more natural to take a man's awful blood in a desperate quarrel when revenge believes its own wild justice than with the calm, leisurely solemnity of the sheriff and the hangman, much more. By the mid-1830s, it seemed as though these advocates were on the brink of success. An address by Governor Edward Everett in 1836 leaves the listener with the impression that capital punishment was on the verge of abolishment. The ancient rigors of the penal code have been mitigated. Punishments revolting to humanity have been abolished, and others substituted which are believed to answer with equal efficacy all the ends of penal justice, and which are more comfortable to the humanity of the age and the mild spirit of Christianity. A grave question has been started, whether it would be safe to abolish altogether the punishment of death. An increasing tenderness for human life is one of the most decided characteristics of the civilization of the day, and should, in every proper way, be cherished. Whether it can, with safety to the community, be carried so far as to permit the punishment of death to be entirely dispensed with is a question not yet decided by philanthropists and legislators. It may deserve your consideration whether this interesting question can be brought to the test of the sure teacher, experience. An experiment, instituted and pursued for a sufficient length of time, might settle it on the side of mercy. Such a decision would be a matter of cordial congratulation. Should a contrary result ensue, it would probably reconcile the public mind to the continued infliction of capital punishment as a necessary evil. No matter the oratorical zeal Everett brought to the debate, The most anti-death penalty advocates could hope for under his administration was a compromise. In 1839, a bill passed through the Massachusetts General Court that abolished the death penalty for highway robbery and burglary. Other capital crimes, from murder, arson, to rape, and of course piracy, would have to wait. At the same time that activists were advocating to change the laws in Massachusetts to reduce or eliminate the use of the death penalty, the death penalty was being applied less and less. Using records from the Death Penalty Information Center, we found that 23 people were executed in Massachusetts during the years from 1801 to 1830, not counting those who were hanged for piracy. If you listen to our recent episode about Cotton Mather's execution sermons for convicted pirates, you'll remember that Massachusetts has always treated piracy as a separate, gravely serious crime, because it was seen as a crime not only against life and limb, but the very fabric of the social order. So leaving aside 10 people who were hanged for piracy, we calculate a rate of 0.53 executions per year over the 15-year period from 1801 to 1815, 
and 0.93 per year from 1816 to 1830. We then looked at the 15 years from 1831 to 1845, when the last execution in the state before Washington goods was carried out. During that time period, there were only four non-pirate executions. That works out to a rate of 0.27 executions per year, which is an enormous drop from the preceding period. Anti-death penalty advocates had reason to be optimistic. Before Washington Good's execution in 1849, nobody had been executed in Massachusetts for a simple murder since 1830. As we mentioned, we're counting piracy separately, and there have been nine hangings for piracy. Three men who were convicted of arson were executed, and one man who was convicted of a heinous rape and murder. But nobody up until that point had been executed for a simple murder since a young man named John Knapp in 1830. Even Albert Terrell, the subject of our 43rd episode, called The Case of the Somnambulist, was not put to death. He had murdered Maria Bickford with a knife, nearly decapitating her, then he set fire to the body. At trial, his defense attorney claimed that he had committed the crime while sleepwalking, and he avoided the gallows. An article in a journal called The Prisoner's Friend that was dedicated to penal reform and abolishing the death penalty compared Good's sentence to that of Terrell and other recent high-profile murder cases. Yes, Washington, thou must die. Thou art too vulgar to excite compassion. What misery there is in being vulgar. A little romance might help thee much. Hadst thou been as fair as Polly Bodine, and crept into a sister's chamber and burned her to death, then there might be hope, for perhaps the twelve might not agree. Or hadst thou been a learned doctor with extensive practice, and known how to drug a brandy prepared for a friend and benefactor who had kindly lent thee money and hid his body under a woodpile, thy case were not quite so bad. Thy life might then be spent in making doorstops or hammering curbstones, useful work. Or hadst thou found thyself at midnight where a wife could not follow, and in thy haste to depart had slain thy partner and set fire to her chamber, mental infirmity might have a kind word to utter and call thee a sleepwalker, or if done into Latin and given thee out as a somnambulist, there would be little danger for thy neck, and December might be pleasanter than May. When so many white men who faced murder charges were convicted of lesser crimes, pardoned, or had their death sentences commuted, there was widespread outrage at the decision to hang Washington Good. Even the same week Good was sentenced to die, a murderer named Auguste Dutit had his sentence commuted from death to life in prison. Which brings us back to the beginning of the story, and the seven-foot-long scroll containing signatures that was found in Concord. After the sentence, opponents of the death penalty formed a committee to lobby for Good's life. They started by posting a handbill around Boston titled, Shall He Be Hung? A version of it appeared in William Lloyd Garrison's abolitionist newspaper, The Liberator, and other papers. Public meetings were held at the Tremont Temple in Boston and churches around the state. An open letter to Governor Briggs said, Sir, heaven spare your reputation and your counsel and your posterity, for I fear the very earth will cease before the stain be washed out. Under the names of well-known ministers and prominent abolitionists like Wendell Phillips, Samuel May, and Frederick Douglass himself, Letters were circulated to towns around the state, soliciting petitions against Good's execution. Some towns used the boilerplate language that was included with the letter, while others wrote their own petitions. 
In Concord, the petition described the impending execution of Washington Good as a crime in which we would under no circumstances participate, which we would prevent if possible, and in the guilt of which we will not, by seeming assent of silence, suffer ourselves to be implicated. Research by the Thoreau Society indicates that the Concord petition might have been circulated by Anna Maria Whitting, an abolitionist and a subscriber to the anti-death penalty publication Prisoner's Friend. Along with the signature of Henry David Thoreau, the Concord petition bears the signature of five members of his immediate family. Ellen Emerson signed it, and there's a signature that might have belonged to her father, Ralph Waldo. In all, over 400 residents of the town signed the petition, over 20% of the population of the town. On the Concord petition, as on many of the surviving petitions, the names are collected into two columns. The men are on the left, and the women are on the right. Because, of course, only the men could vote, so politicians only needed to really pay attention to them. In all, 130 towns in Massachusetts submitted petitions to the governor. Today, of course, there are 351 cities and towns in the Commonwealth. 46 of those were added since 1849, so at the time there were 305 towns which means that over 40% of towns participated in the petition campaign in some way. Among all the petitions, 24,440 signatures were submitted by Massachusetts residents. There were a few additional petitions from places outside the state, including Good's birthplace of Mercersburg, Pennsylvania, but of course those signatures weren't counted. You might ask what opposing public opinion looked like. There was, in fact, a petition campaign in favor of Washington Good's execution by death penalty proponents. The only town that actually submitted a petition in favor of the hanging was Woburn. It misspelled the word execution. There were nine signatures attached. When all was said and done, Governor Briggs agreed to a commutation hearing on April 25th. After hearing testimony, the governor declined to commute Good's sentence and the execution date was set for one month in the future. From the first English settlement of the Massachusetts Bay Colony through the early 1800s, all executions in Massachusetts were held publicly. In response to the growing campaign against the death penalty, executions in mid-19th century Boston began to be carried out privately. Critics said that moving executions to private settings had the effect of moving them out of sight and out of mind inspiring an 1849 poem. Put the scaffold on the common where the multitude can meet, and all the schools and ladies summon, let them all enjoy the treat. What's the use of being private? Hanging is a righteous cause. Men should witness what you drive at when you execute the laws. When Washington Good's execution was scheduled for May 25, 1849, in the prison yard at the Leverett Street Jail in the West End, an editorial in The Prisoner's Friend decried the private hanging. But again, I would not sanction murder in any form, but I do solemnly believe that the murder which your victim is said to have committed, for you are not absolutely certain that you have got the right man, would never have half the corrupting influence upon the community that your legal murder will have on the 25th day of May. It may be done privately, but what of that? Even the most senseless, who can put a thought to a thought, must see through this thin gauze of your lawmakers, that they are ashamed of their own work. What, sir, you propose to benefit the commonwealth and all future generations, and yet your work must be done privately? No, 
in heaven's name, let the deed be done on our common at the most holy time and by the most holy men. A review conducted by your Baptist brethren in England recommends that the execution place be St. Paul's Cathedral or Westminster Abbey, and that a bishop or an archbishop be the hangman. Do not skulk behind the stone walls of a miserable jail and there coolly put your victim to the torture. Give us the broad day and the public highway. In fact, why not have it during the religious anniversaries? Would it not give a zest to the services of that holy week? Let all the benevolent societies pause and all the Sabbath schools be assembled. Let it have all its sanctifying influences, especially as this will probably be the last man, for you would not have hung a woman, and perchance not even a white man, and possibly not even a man of wealth, and possibly not even done this deed at all, but it has been covertly hinted to me that a few votes were lost last year because no one was executed. But let that pass. The night before the execution, Good met with his clergyman, maintaining his innocence until the end. It was standard operating procedure to post a guard on suicide watch outside the cell of the condemned on the eve of his execution. William Lloyd Garrison's newspaper, The Liberator, carried an account of Good's last night on earth. At about 12 o'clock, the officer discovered that Good had attempted to commit suicide by cutting the veins at the elbow, by swallowing a large quantity of tobacco and paper, and by stuffing his blanket into his mouth. Assistance was called and the flow of blood stopped, though he was left in a very weak state. Good had first swallowed tobacco and other substances to try to poison himself, then used a shard of glass to open the veins in his arms, then tried to smother himself by swallowing part of his blanket. A doctor saved his life. The state would not be denied its vengeance. After the doctor stopped the flow of blood, Good spent the rest of the night alternating between vomiting and sleeping fitfully. At 7 a.m. he was awakened. A Reverend Taylor prayed for his forgiveness in the next life, while Good slipped in and out of consciousness due to the blood loss. Activists had raised the idea of using one of the newly discovered anesthesias on condemned prisoners. The law said that the punishment of death shall be inflicted by hanging the convict by the neck until he is dead. But it didn't say that he had to be conscious. The prisoner's friend, always sympathetic to a convict, argued that ether or chloroform should be used to render a prisoner insensible to pain. The sentence of death could be carried out without unnecessary pain and suffering. The question now arises, how shall the hanging be performed here in Boston? Since the last execution among us, the ether discovery has taken place. Ether or chloroform is now universally used by surgeons in painful operations. Shall not the convict share also the advantages of this benign discovery? He is to be hanged by the neck. Shall not this be done with the least possible pain? If we follow the spirit of the law, there would seem to be no doubt that it must be done with the least possible pain. And it seems equally clear that it is within the discretion of the sheriff to permit any form of alleviating the pain which is consistent with the one thing opposed upon him by the law, namely, the hanging of good by the neck until he is dead. We will not undertake to determine whether humanity does not require that the convict, if he chooses, shall be allowed the benefit of ether. We content ourselves with saying that it is clearly within the discretion of the sheriff to permit the pains of the convict to be thus alleviated.
At 8.45, it was time for the sheriff and guards to lead Washington Good in a procession to the gallows, but Good couldn't stand up or even keep his eyes open. No ether was administered, but it was unclear whether Good was fully conscious anyway. He was strapped to a chair, and the chair was carried to the scaffold by two guards. About a hundred witnesses observed the execution from the prison yard, while hundreds more crowded into windows and on rooftops in the surrounding streets. The book Rites of Execution describes the final spectacle. The condemned man requested water, and at 9.30, the sheriff led the procession to the gallows with good carried by two constables. He was lifted onto the platform, placed over the drop, and had the rope adjusted around his neck. Sheriff Everleff read the warrant signed by the governor, who was reported to be out of town attending a Baptist convention in Philadelphia. The sheriff asked Good if he had any last words, but the sailor only moaned. His eyes were upturned toward the skies and fixed vacantly upon the void above when the deputy sheriff drew a white hood over Good's face. At 9.45, the drop fell and Good's body, still fastened to the chair, plunged several feet. Those nearest the gallows heard the neck snap. The body hanged 25 minutes before physicians examined it and pronounced Good dead. The next day's newspapers reported the terrible spectacle of a man too weak to stand being strapped to a chair and hanged. The Boston Herald's headline screamed, Leverett Street Tragedy. The Boston investigator said, Washington Good is a colored man, and here ends all reasons for hanging him. Frederick Douglass's paper, the Rochester North Star, said, May this be the last time that Massachusetts thus disgraces herself in the eyes of the thinking and the humane. With this outpouring of emotion, death penalty opponents had reason to be optimistic. Washington Good's death prompted hopeful editorials like this one in the Boston Pilot. The hanging of Washington Good, a colored man, in Boston last week for the murder of Harding in a drunken row, has created a vehement discussion between the friends and opponents of capital punishment. The advocates of hanging argue that society cannot get on without it, that it is necessary as a terror to evildoers and a protection to the community. This is only a question of time. Once upon a time, not long ago, a man would be hanged for stealing a sheep and for forgery. Time has rectified that legislative brutality, scoffingly. In a little time, justice will be ashamed to remember that she used to strangle poor devils with her white fingers for the good of society. In the years following Washington Good's death, the rate of non-piracy executions in Massachusetts began to creep back up again. From 1846 to 1860, there were six, including Good himself. In the period from 1861 to 1875, ten executions were carried out. In a tragic irony, the movement against the death penalty and petitions in support of Washington Good may well have led to an increase in the number of executions in Massachusetts. If the argument against executing Good had been that the death penalty was applied unfairly to black defendants, certainly the remedy would be to hang more white men. The year after Good was executed, John White Webster, an educated, politically connected professor at Harvard Medical School, was sentenced to death for killing his friend George Parkman, one of the richest men of his era. When Parkman went to collect a debt from Webster, the latter man flew into a rage, beating Parkman to death with a fireplace poker. Then, perhaps panicking, 
He dismembered the body, burned parts in his furnace, attempted to dissolve others with acid, and dumped more down his privy. When a janitor discovered the remains, all that was recovered was half a torso, most of one leg, part of the second, a pelvis, and a badly burned jawbone. You can hear the whole story of Webster's crime and trial in episode 24, but after he was convicted and sentenced to death, his influential friends began to lobby the governor on his behalf, insisting that a prison term was more appropriate for a man of his wealth and class than a hangman's rope. However, Governor Briggs was feeling pressure from the other side as well. The Fall River Weekly News carried an editorial warning Briggs of the political consequences of commuting Webster's sentence. If any delays, misgivings, or symptoms of mercy are manifested, the gibbeted body of Washington Good will be paraded before the mind's eye of His Excellency. If he relents in this case, though the entire population of the state petitioned for a remission of sentence, Governor Briggs will forfeit all claim to public respect as a high-minded, honorable, and impartial chief magistrate. He can do one of two things and retain his character as a man and a public servant. Resign his office, or let the law take its course. Briggs let the law take its course, and Webster was hanged. However, in a political compromise, Briggs led the effort to restrict the use of the death penalty to only cases of first-degree murder. In 1852, he was successful. The Massachusetts General Court passed a bill that outlawed the use of capital punishment for rape, arson, and treason against the state it would remain the ultimate punishment for murder for over a century. Until 1951, the death penalty was required upon conviction for first-degree murder, although governors frequently commuted the sentence to life in prison. The last executions to actually be carried out in Massachusetts took place at Charlestown State Penitentiary in 1947. Since the 1970s, capital punishment has seen a complicated legal history in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, as it has across the nation. In 1972, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled in the case of Furman v. Georgia that the death penalty was applied inconsistently and arbitrarily, and struck down all death penalty laws in the country until they could be rewritten in a way the court deemed fair. Massachusetts reinstated the death penalty in 1982 under this ruling, but no death sentences were carried out before the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court ruled two years later that it could not be applied fairly in the Commonwealth and was thus unconstitutional. In 1997, a 10-year-old Cambridge boy named Jeffrey Curley was kidnapped, raped, murdered, and dumped in a river in Maine. In the months that followed, the state was swept with rage against the pedophiles who had murdered him. Public opinion began swinging in favor of capital punishment, and thousands of people signed a petition in favor of bringing it back. Bob Curley, Jeffrey's father, was very outspoken in leading the campaign to bring back the death penalty. The bill that followed nearly passed. It was defeated by only a single vote in the House of Representatives. A few years later, citing the inherent imperfections in the justice system, Bob Curley publicly reversed his position and renounced the death penalty. The debate was briefly reignited by the 2013 Boston Marathon bombing case. When federal prosecutors announced that they would seek the death penalty for Jokar Sarnayev, they were in opposition to over 55 years of tradition, public opinion in Massachusetts, and the wishes of the victims' families. The parents of Martin Richards, 
the youngest victim killed in the bombing, spoke out against seeking the death penalty, as did several survivors who lost limbs. At the time, only 30% of the state supported the death penalty in general, and just 15% believed that Tsarnaev should be executed. Twice since the bombing, a state representative from Wilmington has put forward a bill to reinstate the death penalty in Massachusetts. It quietly failed by a vote of 110 to 46 in 2015, and seems unlikely to make it out of committee this time. To learn more about the Washington Good case in opposition to the death penalty in 19th century Massachusetts, check out this week's show notes at hubhistory.com 068. We'll have links to an issue of Prisoner's Friend devoted to the case, to a large collection of petitions from the Harvard Archives, to an issue of the Boston Pilot covering the execution, and to Governor Everett's speech against the death penalty. We'll also link to an article in the Concord Saunterer about the petition in that town. And, of course, we'll have links to information about this week's featured historic site and upcoming event. If you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at podcast at hubhistory.com. We're Hub History on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Or you can go to hubhistory.com and click on the Contact Us link. While you're on the site, hit the subscribe link and be sure that you never miss an episode. If you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, please think about writing us a brief review. It's still the best way to help others discover the show. That's all for now. We'll be back next week.